Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. I'm Bryant Bales. I'm Jeremy Hodges. And today we'd like to talk with you about the Bible. Specifically, we want to discuss Exodus chapters 19 and 20. Walking Through the Book is all about these three things. We want to encourage Bible reading. We want to demonstrate proper and responsible study of the Bible. And we want to emphasize what the text says, no more and no less. Before we start, we do want to let you know how to get in touch with us. You can find us on Facebook. If you look at Walking Through the Book, you can find us there. Uh, and, of course, uh, we have our normal crew here and uh, grateful for you guys being here. Well, thanks thanks for everything you do, Stephen. Appreciate you putting this together. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, it's such an encouraging uh, study to be able to read through it the way we do, and uh, it's, it's a highlight. So I really appreciate being able to be a part of it. Well, it's enjoyable just on a on on that level, um, and that's that's what's so great about doing this. It's not like it, it's it's fascinating because as of, as of this recording, I think we've done, uh, I think maybe five or six episodes together. Generally, maybe more. Uh, at least you know with with the three of us since uh, Jeremy came in, and uh, I still have not been able to actually edit these all and put them out on the web. So uh, it's it's kind of interesting to see that because i mean i'm already getting a benefit out of it hopefully when we finally get it online that will be a benefit as well um but uh jeremy let everybody know kind of what you do and how to get in touch with you man i'm preaching up in uh just north of dc on the maryland side the name of the congregation is wildercroft uh there's a website for the church it's um www.wildercroftcoc.org I um, I run the, uh, the Twitter account for the church, which doesn't do a whole lot right now. Uh, just like your editing, my tweeting sort of <laughs> doesn't always get to happen because things happen. Um, I'm, I'm on Facebook. I use a lot of the, the normal things. My personal Twitter is a lot more active, uh, but all of that's just kind of silliness. But um, but paying attention to what the Bible says and and making sure that we're bringing out these relevant lessons is something I'm able to do with a congregation up here uh, in the, in the nation near the nation's capital. And so I'm probably of the three of us, I think I'm the, the furthest East because I am on the Eastern seaboard. Yeah. So um, I'm also uh, on the East side uh, close to the coast, at least on the Georgia side. Um, I live in Savannah, Georgia, uh, just a really beautiful uh, town, very touristy, so we have a lot of visitors that come through who are vacationing or traveling around uh, on the coast from, you know, some of the 
regions of the country like Florida, uh, either traveling down to Florida or traveling north to some other places. Um, so if you're ever in the area, uh, we'd love for you to visit. Uh, we're in a really easy to find location. Um, our website is strivingforthefaith.org and we have directions on the website and our address. Uh, we have a Facebook page. If you just look up Garden City Church of Christ on Facebook, you'll find our, our Facebook page. Um, so I'm, I'm working as an evangelist with uh, the church here in Savannah. And to my knowledge, um, we're the only sound congregation in the, in the area. Uh, so it's a really exciting work. Um, it's really encouraging, encouraging group. It's a small group. Um, so we, we would just love to see you. Um, as far as what, what we're doing with our podcast, uh, we're, we're doing something that we believe is simple, but very powerful. Uh, we're simply reading through the Bible from the very beginning. Uh, we started with Genesis chapter one, and today we're looking at Exodus 19 and 20. And so what we do is we, we simply read a, a portion of, of text. Uh, so today it'll be two chapters. And after we read through the text, we start by just making some initial observations of what we read. That might be things that are either important that we want to talk about uh, or things that we may have not really noticed something in before. Um, so making maybe an observation on something that we want to talk about that we're just not understanding fully or just haven't noticed before. And then after that, we look at themes of how the text connects to other parts of uh, the overall uh, story in scripture. So there might be things that connect back to Genesis, maybe the greater account in Exodus, uh, maybe even the, the future of the Old Testament uh, uh, history, and obviously to Christ and the church. And um, this section, I'm, I'm really thinking we'll be seeing a lot of New Testament connections uh, in this text. And then when we, when we finish, we always try to end with making some brief applications, you know, to have some takeaways. So that's what we'll be doing. That's what we'll be doing this morning. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, 
If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people, and set before them all these words which Yahweh commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back all the words of the people to Yahweh. Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh. Yahweh also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, then they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. He said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes, and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations from those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord, your God. In it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, 
the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you, and I will bless you. And if you will make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Ain't nobody want to see your junk, pal. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. I, hey, look. Look, I think that he can't. It's, now, he even tells them later when he talks about the priest's garments that they're going to have to wear something to cover their stuff. He goes, because mm-hmm. you don't want to, yeah. you don't want to confuse, you don't want to confuse what you're doing, this work, with you flashing, flashing your, your batch at people. That's just not, that's not the thing that, that works. Well, it's neat that you make that observation. It's that, like, I mean, you think about how different this is to yes. what we know of, of ancient religions yep. and their oh, yeah. practices. And it's like already God is striking out and saying, no, you're going to be different. You're going to be my people. You're going to be, you know, distinct. So I think it's interesting that that is connected with the idea of the fact because I don't want you, this can't be about you. Right. If this yeah. is about your craftsmanship and your stonemasonry, you are profaning my altar. You don't get to make yeah, you don't get to make this about you. Right. Yeah. And that kind of connects back to I think it's what is it, Genesis five, where you know the descendants of Cain mm-hmm. are the ones that are the Masons, they're they're good at trades and things like that. They're making music. And, uh, 
But that's not what God is all about. God is just simply about full submission to his will and his way. Um, and so... And when they do craft something, because later on they do craft an altar, but it right. has to look exactly after the manner that he tells them. Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. So, I mean, the, the other part that kind of jumped out at me too, in verse uh, verse 4 of chapter 19... I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Um, yeah. You know, that's, I guess I would, that would denote some aspect of swiftness or, you know, quickness. Uh, open to you guys ideas about that. Well, okay. I, it, and I'm sure it's been noted before in your Bible classes before that most of the law in one way or another follows a an ancient Near East contract format, and even some kind of contract format, and even in our day, um, a lot has been made of the suzerain vassal treaties that are uh, found in a lot of the cultures around uh, Israel and Canaan. And so, in the vassal suzerain vassal treaty, one of the first things in the opening clauses is a it talks about their history of the two. How did you come to meet one another? And so what he is doing is he is laying out already how we all came to be in this position, the party of the first part and the party of the second part. And the party of the first part, me, brought you to me. That is, you exist here before me at this point to make this treaty because I saved you. Therefore, the rest of our conversation is going to be based on the fact that I've already saved you. And and the treaty is about that because God positions himself in the treaty as the stronger nation. He positions himself as the mightier force that is going to protect the weaker force that is Israel, provided they agree to and they follow all the stipulations of the the treaty. Well, that's another thing that I think of sometimes with the law and with the way that God had put this together with Israel, because on the one hand, this is different from pretty much any other religion of the time. And at the same time, it's just close enough where if you're not looking very intently, you're going to miss it. And you're going to think, well, this is just the same God as any other gods. And that's what you see Gentiles doing, not Gentiles in general. You see a lot of faithful Gentiles in the Old Testament as well. But a lot of the leaders, um, you know, I'm thinking later on. But, it, but uh, you know, it, it, it's fascinating that God is able to show himself clearly yeah, at the same time, if if people are willing, they can they can be blinded to that. And I think that is a universal notion. One of the things that's interesting, he says that you're going to be special to me, mm-hmm. but not because I own you now, because I own everything. I literally own the entirety of everything, but you will be special to me in my ownership. And that, of course, is kind of reflected in some passages like in, in Psalm 50. In Psalm 50, he does distance himself from other gods by saying, I don't eat your sacrifices. I'm not mad at you because you didn't bring me enough food. Honestly, if I was ever hungry, I don't even need to tell you I own everything. I'll go get my own food. So this is not just about you feeding me or you taking care of me or you supporting me. This is about the relationship I want us to maintain. I want you to offer Mm -hmm. a sacrifice at Thanksgiving. I want you to come to me with humility and and honesty. And so... You talked about the fact that this does echo some similarities to relationships of nations with gods, but it is peculiar and different 
based on some of the things too. And I think that's one of the things we can see in this. So many things that set up context for the law, you know, that makes it not just a law of, of works, you know, Oh yeah. Um, but how salvation by grace through faith is being set up very clearly here, you know, like in verse four, you know, I've been, I've been thinking about the concept of the obedience of faith and, um, how obedience is based on wanting, wanting closeness with God and recognizing that everything that God says is said for the purpose of cultivating a deeper closeness and more intimacy with God, which can be easy to miss. Um, and I think verse four, when he says like, I've done all this to bring you to me, uh, this kind of might be a comment leaking into themes a little bit, but you know, I feel like God is giving people the ability to think about the greater purpose of what he's doing. You know, is he just trying to like do things that have only present value on the earth and nothing more, you know, God just doing temporary things and playing around with people almost like, you know, like puppets or like a game. Yeah, yeah. Or or is he doing something that has a significance related to his nature? And I think here, verse 4, is a pretty loud hint that God is doing things with the nation for the express purpose of bringing people into his own personal glory. And that there are, there are, there are present things that he's doing, but those present things are are being done for the purpose of bringing attention to things that are beyond the present. So when he says like, I've done this to bring you to me, well, where is God? Who is God? And I think, you know, everything leading up to this point and afterwards, people get that. Not everybody gets it, but I think it really gives context for the law that God is not just giving them tasks to perform. He's doing things that are meant to cultivate a desire in the people to be close with God and to recognize God and to see their need for God. And so I think verse four and five just really set such an amazing context for the things that come afterward. Not only that, they are, they, the laws specifically start to cultivate a character in nature in the people because their actions Mm -hmm. reflect his. Yeah. Right, 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 right. I mean, so many times, I mean, like in Deuteronomy 10, just for example, when you have the review of the law, he tells them specifically, he says, look, you're not going to take a bribe because I don't take bribes, okay? Right. I'm honest and yeah. straightforward, and that's the way you're going to be. I take care of everyone on the earth, and so you're going to take care of people who are different from you. That's how this works. Right. You're going to have yeah. my nature in you. And when you get to the, um, like, in Leviticus 18 and 19, you have the, the, the kind of the gross laws or the what we sometimes call the Jerry Springer laws. You know, over and over again, he says, he says, and why are you going to do this? Because, because I'm Yahweh and you're going to be like me. You're going to be holy. Like I'm holy. Right. And this is what it looks like. And he gives some very practical applications of that. And right. Right. The practical application of it, just like you were saying, and, and kind of what, what Stephen was saying a minute ago, uh, the practical application of this is so that people are different. They are actually different. Now right. we don't, we don't see the word love here like this, but the new Testament writers understand that all of these things that he's telling them to do. These are ways that you practically love other people. Mm-hmm. 
love is not abstract. Mm. Love has love has function. It's practical. Mm-hmm. And how does it look practically? It looks like this. Well, you know, it's interesting too. You're, we're talking about he wants his people to be close to him, and then he's saying, "Don't touch this holy mountain, mm. lest uh-huh. you die." So, so there's an aspect here too of, uh, and I, 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 basically, what I tell people all the time is that every relationship has rules. Yeah, and and I think that's kind of what what you see there is that there are still limits, there are still boundaries that God sets. Now, I think for their sake, I think it's an instance of keeping them safe. Um, when you're telling a child, you know, well, don't go over there. You know, if I'm, if I'm working on something around the house and I have my tools laying out, uh, if I have something sharp that, you know, could possibly hurt my son, I tell him, don't go over there. Don't play with those, you know? And, uh, I'm not doing that to distance him from me or to push him away necessarily. I'm doing that to keep him safe. And, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't want to speculate too much about this, but I get the sense where he's saying, you know, you may be curious about what's going on at the top of this mountain, but don't, don't come near it. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I welcome you guys thoughts about that because th- that is sort of a, a disconnect or something that we kind of have to attention. We have to resolve from the standpoint of like, he, he wants to be close to his people. They're special people, but at the same time, he's saying, don't come near this mountain lest you die. Now, I don't think we need to resolve the tension. I think we need to embrace the tension. So mm-hmm. think about all the different places. He continues to do this. I want you to be close to me, but we continue to be separate. I'm not you. You're not me. I'm holy. You're not. That's how this is. Now I'm going to teach you and bring you close to me so that you can walk in my ways, but you're not me and I'm not you. Um, you look at the tabernacle. The tabernacle exists for the purpose of God having a presence among his people, but yet his people are not allowed to approach him just any old way. He will perpetually remain holy. Uh, no matter what goes on, he wants the people to be close to him and be able to have his ark and his presence among them. Yet when someone reached out and touched the the ark without reverence, he died immediately. The reality is that God has to be remain. He has to remain holy. So mm-hmm. close, yes, but maintaining an appropriate boundary. What is interesting about all of this, and is this is the point that the Hebrew writer makes so vividly in Hebrews chapter twelve. Toward the end of that, you have that that chiastic section where he says that Sinai is not like Zion. And he draws this strong, this strong uh, delineation because what you have on Sinai is you have a warning. Don't get so close. Don't get too close. Uh, Moses talks about the, the fear and trembling. He says, you don't get that close to me. Zion, on the other hand, no, is really the fact that we are able to be close in a way that we never could before. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the reasons like they come boldly before the throne phrases that show up. Um, not only in uh, Hebrews uh, what four, and then also in twelve. Uh, no, it's before twelve. It's like ten. So Hebrews four and ten, the the come boldly before the throne, come full, boldly before His presence. It's we are only able to do that in Christ. So the Hebrew writer really makes a big deal about what you're talking about, Stephen. This idea that he says, "I'm going to bring you close, but I'm also going to keep you at a distance," and Jesus is the only one who can bridge that gap. Hmm. Well, I, you know, the only other thing that I might suggest as far as initial observations, um, is just 
you know, the, the immediacy of, and the, the specific quality. So if we're just reading this and we don't know about what's coming next, right? Uh, verse 23 of chapter 20, you shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver, gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. I would think that, well, that's oddly, oddly specific. Like you, and, uh, of course what we see later on, we know why that's specifically what God has said. Cause it's, it's like, and one, one of the things that we, we can notice, and I guess this is really the observation I would make is we're already seeing that repetition aspect. Um, because in the commandments, he says very plainly, don't make an image of me. And now he's specifically saying, you don't make anything even to be with me. Um, so uh, I think there's an instance there where we're already seeing the way that God is going to be teaching, uh, teaching his people moving forward. Not, not only that, the, uh, the 10 commandments are a preamble to the entirety of the law, mm-hmm. meaning that the law is connected to the 10 commandments and they're not like a, like a um, table of contents or anything like that. But the rest of the law in many ways is going to connect back to these initial statements, these first statements that he makes. And so the 10 words of the 10 commandments becomes shorthand for the law. All I mean, in several places in the old Testament, and we still talk about it. So when we say 10 commandments, he didn't mean ever 10 commandments with the exclusion of everything else he wrote. But Ten Commandments was given as a part for the whole of the law. And so uh, it is fascinating that he starts to already put some meat on the bones of what he said when he talked about not making anything uh, like him or making any kind of image for worship. And, of course, that's going to continue on. He does start, he, he does start like you noticed a minute ago, that, that the very first thing he says, you're not going to do this in, verses, uh, mm-hmm. in verse 23. And then, of course, it's going to continue throughout so many places throughout the entirety of the law. Yeah, so all of these things connect to other places. Yeah, and it seems like verse 2 of chapter 20, again, sets sets a context for the commandments and the law. You know, mm-hmm. that it's a law of liberty, but only when God is seen for who he is as, as the basis of the law, not when the law is seen just as commandments on their own merit without, without God's character being the emphasis or the foundation, you know, so it seems like verse two is kind of a cornerstone that threads throughout the law, you know, that this is, this is intended to be a law of liberty, but it's liberating when God is seen in it. And when God is the cornerstone of it and when God is the pursuit of it. And and not only is it, Okay, so the misconception about the fact that the law was only a thing, a bunch of things to do with no heart. Mm-hmm. I think there's another mm-hmm. misconception that the law was oppressive and, right. um, yes. and, and, and gave no choice. But he doesn't do that. It's voluntary. Yeah. He says, look, you guys need to agree to this. And so in verse 19, or chapter 19, what would, one of the things we see is we see this back and forth. The people need to understand what they're getting into. So they can voluntarily agree to it or not. So we ha- again, we have this idea that that the law was not a voluntary thing, but it certainly was a voluntary mm-hmm. thing, and we're going to read about that some more in chapter twenty-four. This idea that the people have to agree to this some more. He asks them yeah. at several juncture. Junk, uh, you need to agree to this, and even at the very last thing he says in Deuteronomy chapter thirty, he says, "Okay, now choose, choose for yourselves, pick." 
What are you going to do? Behold, I have set before right. you life and death. And so it being a choice is a fundamental character of the law. Right. And I think you see in verse 8 as well, the basis of their choice were magnificent promises. You know, so you can just yeah. see how God is setting up the people to win. You know, the people are being set up to have faith. You know, their promises are being made that elicit a desire. They want to do, in verse 8, they want to do everything that God has said because they, they see him, they hear his promises, they've experienced deliverance. Chapter 20, verse 2, God says, this is based in who I am as your deliverer from slavery. You know, and I think that gives context to the, the fact that when the law seemed or oppressive or seems oppressive, it's not God's fault for that. It's the fault of disobedience and sin, which is why God warned against disobedience. Because then the thing that is meant to turn, the thing that's meant to result in liberty ends up resulting in oppression, not because of God, but because of the disobedience of the people. Well, absolutely. And not only that, that the the promises to be loyal to these things are the basis for what, how bad their disobedience is. Because later on, right. so many times, the very first thing it says, they forgot what he did. And when right. they forgot what he did, right. they didn't right. listen to what he yes. said. Yep. I do want to say one thing real quick. I think it's really cool. And we talked about this real briefly. Um, that the idea that he says, you are going to be a kingdom of priests that they are going to exist in a place that represents the entire world to him and him to them. Mm. Just mm. as that they were priests chosen among the people to represent him to the nation, the entire nation would be a representative and a go-between. Yeah. Now, that has a lot of application, as, as you mentioned earlier, Bryant, that that is fulfilled completely in the new covenant. There is a, an idea of a nation of priests that is applicable to us as well. We see that in first Peter two. And as uh, I know that you had mentioned in revelation, um, in a couple of places was it chapter five and, and also chapter mm-hmm. one, because he says, I've made you a kingdom and priests. And so that theme continues on this idea that we are to be a representation of him, of him, his nature to the world and also to go before him on the behalf of the world. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I'm sure that many of us at one time or another have been asked to pray for people who are not a part of our congregations or maybe not a part of Mm -hmm. of the, uh, the body of the Lord. And I know that, in my time, I've seen some people get kind of a little bit squidgy about that. They say, uh, you know, are they believers? <laughs> um, I don't know that we are told to make a separation between believers and mm-hmm. non-believers if we're going to go to God mm-hmm. on their behalf. Right, right. Because it's priest work <laughs> to yeah. go before God on behalf of others. Right. And so these people were priests to the whole world. And I think that we need to take that role seriously ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to ask you guys what you think about chapter 19, 21 through 25. Um, you know, where Moses comes up to the mountain, it seems like the only thing God says initially 
is go back down and tell the people not to come here. And then Moses says, but we already established that we, we already told the people that. And so like, it seems like there is this extra heavy emphasis being given to the people. They were already told not to come. The boundaries were already set. But the only thing that God says initially is you need to go back down and tell them again, because this is really serious that they really understand to not approach here. So I'm just wondering what your guys' thoughts are about how it seems like it seems like that's the only thing that God said initially here when the first trip up the mountain. And I just kind of think it's interesting that Moses seems confused in verse 23, where he says, like, I already told the people that. And then in verse 24, God says, no, you need to go down and tell them again. Well, I mean, it it kind of obliterates, again, a lot of the ways that this story is often told. We get the image, you know, very often in our media and so forth, that he just goes up there once and all this is meted out and he gets the Ten Commandments and brings it back down in one, one quick trip. And uh, the reality is the text tells us he's going up and down um, yeah. multiple times. I think it's, you know, a total of, what, four or five times in the scope of this? Um and so uh, I, I think, again, it goes back to that repetition aspect and making it clear, no, this is the way that things need to be and uh, emphasizing it from that perspective. Um, that's that's really what I would say to that is a matter of repetition. But what do you think, Jeremy? Well, he also does. There's a different there. Um, it seems like there's a different consequence. The first thing is or you will die by the hand of human mm-hmm. beings. And it says, don't go mm-hmm. grab him, don't go touch him. Just shoot him, stone him, throw things at him. So you have human uh, retribution for it. Ah, interesting. But he changes because he says, or I will break uh, out. This idea of breaking out, I will lash out. Um, it's it's interesting that um, this idea of of uh, making a break, a peretz, um, is not only used here, but it's also what happens to Uzzah. Mm, yeah, the Lord it broke says out that, against him. Yeah. Yes. Same phrase. Interesting. Now, yeah. J- just just the way we talk about the incident with Uzzah. So often, I think we pretend like God is mean in the mm. Uzzah narrative, or that we don't understand why God is tough, or we don't understand why this. If we have been reading the law. We are not shocked at God's actions. Right. We're shocked yeah. at Uzzah's. Right. Yes, yes, yes. If you had someone who's been reading the law carefully their whole life and it reaches out and it says that he reached out and he touched it, we're going, oh, no. Oh, don't do that. I, th- I think a lot of things in Scripture are like that. Um, kind, kind of random, but like when I was younger, you know, John the Baptist, I remember like, I would think sometimes like, you know, how did the people respond so readily to someone like that? It just seems so random, you know, and, and, and the baptism seems so random. And then Jesus just coming up to people and saying, follow me, you know, like, how could they be so ready, you know, this stranger? But the more you read scripture, the more you realize like, oh, the people, there was so much to Build the people's expectation for someone like John the Baptist, not just the direct prophecies in Isaiah uh, or Malachi. You know, so many different things in the Old Testament were related to what John did and who he was and 
you know, Jesus coming to people and saying, follow me, you know, wasn't just some random person coming to you on your job and saying, quit your job and follow me, you know? And I think like the more you become ingrained with the thinking that is based in scripture, the more things make sense. And, you know, I think it's the same thing with what you're saying with Uzzah, you know, this is a person who had a knowledge of everything that he needed to have the reverence to not do what he did. And he chose to do it anyway, you know, and, and I think it's, it's an unfamiliarity with God that makes mm-hmm. his character shocking in some ways, but the more familiar you become, the more his judgments not only make sense, but they become actually quite praiseworthy. representation of me so don't try Mm, mm -hmm, i am mm -hmm. not physical i am not a created thing don't you are my creation you can't make a thing that is me okay you cannot craft anything with your limitations as being inferior to me that is going to be where i am so don't even start that and later on and he's going to say in deuteronomy he says you didn't even see a form there is no physical form Mm, so don't try to make a mm -hmm. physical form for me it doesn't work like that so each one of the opening commandments um, are they are distinct but not. They are all related to one another because of God's holiness and separateness from their experience and their understanding. Yet they have different applications of it. So one, you have all of this stuff about not making any images to reflect him. But then you also have this idea that even his name, the name I am, Yahweh, the um, the ever-present, the self-existent one, the one that is outside of understanding because he has no beginning, he has no end, he is forever. Mm-hmm. You're not going to take that lightly at all. And, you know, the taking it in vain, we, we reduce it to our detriment. When we make it only about saying, well, I hate that kids nowadays are saying OMG. I'm okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. sure. First of all, we're often very hypocritical about that because some of the same people who will bemoan kids who say OMG like all the time, they will also straight up drop a hallelujah if they don't get seen by the police when they're speeding. And Mm -hmm. hallelujah actually contains the name of the Lord. So let's, let's just be consistent. Mm-hmm. The second thing about that is I think we also reduce it poorly when we say, oh, but that's just really about not making vows. No, no, it's not. Because profaning the name of Yahweh for his people 
meant anything that they were going to do to bring shame on him because they were associated with him. So, yeah, it is about breaking promises that you took as an oath, uh, invoking the, the name of Yahweh. But when you were associated with his name and you brought shame on his name, that's another problem. And so you shall not take the name in vain has a variety of different applications that need yeah. to be taken seriously. Yeah, because I mean, I think you see in the context of scripture, you know, which we can look more at in themes and applications that there's holding God's name and esteem is ultimately how we're representing God, you know, like Jesus in John 17 will say, I have revealed your name. I've manifested your name, you know? So it's like, Jesus wasn't just saying like, Hey, God's name is the I am God's name is the I am God's name is the I am. No, he lived in a way to lift the name of God to its highest possible position. Which is ultimately ironic because there are times when he makes the application to himself as the son Mm-hmm, that that's mm-hmm. what they want to charge him with is blasphemy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yep. And I do, I think we sometimes have to be a little more careful about Monday morning quarterbacking some of the some of the Pharisees in the first century because some of the things that Jesus says are intentionally shocking. So when he, you know, a, a human being, a person, Joe Every Guy, Josh Carpenter tells them straight in the face that he, Joe Everett guy, is the singular, only, holy, separate, I am God. It is intentionally disconcerting. Mm. And I think that's where a lot of the, the, the cause for their um, anger comes from. Because they are struggling with the concept that here a man who looks like every guy is saying that he is the only singular I am in the flesh. Mm-hmm. And that that's mm-hmm. not an easy thing to, to deal with. Well, I think about verse nine and from our perspective, when God is saying, behold, I come to you I'm in chapter 19, by the way, God says, behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. Mm-hmm. When you look at the big picture of how things progress with Moses mm-hmm. and the people in that relationship, it's like, I'm very skeptical toward the Lord saying that. And it's just like, you know, in fact, Moses is going to be, you know, questioned multiple times and resisted multiple times. And so, you know, there, there's something to be said there. And maybe maybe what God really is talking about there is the big picture of how Moses is going to be regarded in the hundreds of years following and how he's going to be looked back upon and quoted and uh, considered as, as just a hero. And, uh, you know, I, may, maybe that's some part of it, but um, that they will believe you forever. That's that's of interest to God, that, that the people believe what Moses is saying. Absolutely, and I and I think it's super ironic, and I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to make this point earlier. That him saying that they were a nation of priests is the line that Korah uses to try to throw off Moses' authority. Hmm. I mean, it comes from the same set of verses, the same place where it says that they will believe in you forever, i.e., Moses, you have the authority to speak for me. 
Korah uses something in that same context to say, we don't have to listen to you because we're all priests. Again, tying it in with the New Testament, of course, the, the obvious aspect is what's been mentioned in uh, Revelation. You know, Revelation 1 and verse 6, a kingdom of priests and kings, you know, kings and priests, uh, depending on the translation you're looking at there. But um, so that's the literal fulfillment of this is that with the covenant that we have now, the kingdom of Christ, we are indeed priests before God. And uh, so there is that aspect of things. But then it's like, how did that come about? That didn't come about just because we said so. That came about right. because because a great price was paid. Right. And, uh, and, and great lengths were taken to allow for this sacrifice so that we could be part of this covenant. We don't get to just decide for ourselves, well, I'm all right with God. And that, that's what Cora was doing was that he's, he was deciding on his own. That, that, you know, this is the way it's going to be. And uh, God doesn't take well to that, I'm, you know. No. No. He, so he, I, he's, he's again it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's an important theme as well, that God is able to vindicate the people he chooses. So, like, Moses, with all the disputes, you know, I think one thing is in verse 9 of chapter 19, where he says that they may believe in you forever. You know, that, that means that if the people did not believe in Moses. It was because they had hardened their hearts to what they could clearly see, which means the people are no better than Pharaoh. And so the people will be treated like Pharaoh. Um, And I think that's the point of Romans, uh, Romans nine, 10 and 11, making the comparison between Israel and Pharaoh is Israel seeming like they innocently missed the Messiah and their disobedience or sincerely have a zeal for God. But, just sincerely don't see the evidence that Christ is truly their king and that the church is truly the people of God. Uh, in Romans, I think Paul makes the point that it's not from sincerity that they're missing it. No. It's because they're mm-hmm. they're hardening their hearts like Pharaoh did. And, and I think you see that with Jesus, that in chapter 17 of John, verse 6, where I mentioned Jesus says, I've manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. Um you see that principle lived out in Jesus, that Jesus, people really struggled with who he was. People treated him shamefully, but God vindicated, he vindicated Jesus. And I think that same confidence is meant to be a very important theme for us, that as God associates his name with us, there can be a lot of intimidation in the world to compromise conviction or the things that God says that associate us with him very clearly. But I think the promise is God God in time will always vindicate his name in the end. He will vindicate those who are associated with him and he'll vindicate them in a way where in judgment, it's, it's those who have been oppressed because of God's name who will end up being set in the proper position in the end. Well, and I mean, isn't that what we see with David? I mean, David, right. Yeah. Amen. David basically essentially gets special treatment. I think uh, right. it was mentioned earlier about Uzzah. In the situation there, I mean, you could make the case that really this is all David's fault. And David mm-hmm. ought to be suffering for allowing this situation mm-hmm. to be present. But uh, at the same time, uh, you know, David finds grace in the Lord. Now, again, we could try to parse all that out and figure it all out. But really, God gets to decide where grace is bestowed and where it's not bestowed. And uh, it's not that he just didn't like Uzzah. It's just a sense where... 
David created this bad situation. And if you read the Chronicles, you find that afterward he recognizes we didn't seek him after the due order. We didn't try, you know, we, we didn't do everything right. And he recognizes that in that time he wants to do it right. And so um, I, I think that that has something to do with it, too. The condition of the heart, the things mm-hmm. that uh, the things that most people can't see. And so that's why David, when accused by, you know, by others or when persecuted by his own son, Absalom, he could hold on to his faith in God and know that, you know, God's going to make this right. God's going to be the one to handle all this. I don't have to be the one to meet out punishment, even though he very easily could. He was a very, I would say, even in his old age, he probably was still a, a very good warrior. So, well, okay. In regard to in regard to Uzzah and David, yes, it is David's fault for creating a situation. Um, and I do have to say that the the difference is also reverence, because David is trying to cultivate reverence. He's doing things that are out of reverence, and and Uzzah was punished because he didn't have reverence. I mean, that's that's kind of. I mean, God says that very straightforwardly. Uh, and, and while I agree with you, David was ultimately at fault, and he knew he was. He, he was afraid. He didn't know what to do about the situation. He was he was upset, and he knew that he was at fault. Uh, one of the things that David continues to do over his life is realize how many times he's at fault. Uh, but it is that heart of reverence, which is some, going back to something that Brian was bringing up. This isn't just about checking all the boxes. It never has been. This has always been about a loyal reverence for God. Mm-hmm. Right. So speaking of that, I think another theme is the transfiguration that I think is interesting. Um, so in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know, Jesus is transfigured, and I'm, I'm looking at Luke's account, and um, I think it's worth noting that in Luke nine thirty four, you know, Jesus's appearance was slightly glorified. I mean, his face was shining and his clothes were extremely white. Moses and Elijah are there. You know, Peter ends up saying that they should make three tabernacles for each of them and a cloud, a thick cloud overshadows them and they become afraid. And then I imagine the cloud was so encompassing that they could not really see what was happening anymore, which is why they became afraid. And then this voice speaks out of the cloud. This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him, you know? And, and I think a problem the disciples seem to have is they were taking for granted who it was they were given access to be so close to, you know, that Jesus was not just their buddy. He wasn't just a good friend that they had, but Jesus, his, his presence, although he was extending mercy Mercy can be known as mercy when it's not being taken for granted. And when you recognize the sacrifice involved in extending yourself. And I think the transfiguration really made it apparent that the reverence that was in Mount Sinai was not to be lost in being around Jesus. And I think that's even in the new covenant, there can be a misunderstanding, you know, that God's grace means his word is not so serious anymore and his commandments don't hold the kind of gravity that the Old Testament had. And I think that's such a backwards misunderstanding that you do not see emphasized in the New Testament. What you see is that in Hebrews chapter 2, the words now, because of the trust that's invested in that greater extension of mercy, 
there's a greater extension extension of trust that knowing Christ should now cultivate a greater sense of reverence for how God has condescended himself in a greater way. The, the, the same God who is a consuming fire, who is now extending a greater sense of trust with his presence that's not to be taken for granted. This idea of so that people could believe in Moses and it being connected with the respect for him, I think is borne out in the incident with the golden calf. Mm. Because the slander of Moses is associated with their idea of abandoning what God had said about idol idolatry. As for this Moses, we do not we do not know what has become of him. So the next mm. obvious thing is, well, we need an idol now. Yeah. So I mean, we've been talking about these things like like they were kind of separate, but really it seems that they are very interconnected too. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the ongoing message of the prophets, and you know? often the criticism or the reason that's brought up in the prophets about why the people turn aside to idols is, well, the Lord's not watching or, you know, where's the Lord among us or what, you know, what's, you know, and, uh, that's, you know, that, that is the commonality. And, and, and I, I could, I could see some ways where we can consider that. I'm also thinking about how, you know, when, with these Ten Commandments and, and, you know, a lot of people make this point. I'm, I'm open to you guys' thoughts here. I don't know if you guys have ever heard the moral law versus the um, ordinal law argument mm-hmm. in the sense that mm-hmm. the Ten Commandments are consistent because this is the moral law. But then everything else is, you know, that everything else was what was nailed to the cross. Um, what? I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> whoa. Wait a minute. No, I mean, I, I've had conversations with Seventh-day Adventists where that, that's, that's what they basically believe, is that the Ten Commandments are still binding from that perspective. Now, what's interesting about this is, in the New Testament, when when Jesus has this uh, conversation with the fellow who's called the rich young ruler, where we think of him as the rich young ruler, um, it's a restatement of the commandments, but it doesn't state all the commandments. No. And so that's what's fascinating to me. It's almost like even before the new covenant is really secured and put together, Jesus is, is quoting these things or making it clear these things that, that, that endure about this law. And so I just, I'm open to you guys' uh, response on that. In the case of the rich young ruler, I think that Jesus very specifically leaves out the, the kind of the beginning commandments because he talks about some of the ceremonial things, but the man's problem was idolatry. I think Jesus is very particularly leaving out some of them because that's what the man's real problem was. Right. But then the other thing that we recognize throughout the course of the new Testament is that, uh, you know, essentially the, you know, some of the cores of the, of the 10 commandments, you know, even after in, you know, in the, in the letters in the new Testament, we find those elements, honor your father and mother, um, you know, murdering, adultery, stealing. And of course, even in the new Testament, there, there was a need, for example, Acts 15 to make it clear, you know, circumcision is not something that's required. We never commanded it, uh, of you and things like that. But at the same time, don't drink blood or, you know, don't eat blood. Uh, and you know, 
don't don't commit sexual immorality. Um, so it's it's fascinating to see that again you see this aspect of liberty from bondage in the new covenant. You're freed from the old law. You're freed from your sins. You're freed from all these previous things. But at the same time, there are still limitations. There are still boundaries. Because I think, again, a big part of this is that boundaries help us feel safe. Um, because we know, you know, we know what's going to happen. We know God is not uh, inconsistent. And so that, that gives us safety. That gives us comfort. Um, and I think that's at least part of what's going on there. Um, so, well, the other thing about the, the difference in the two things he says, okay. So when, when James sets down what he does about circumcision versus some of the other things, uh, it seems that he's going back to some of the, some of the Noahic, um, things, especially about the things about strangled and blood. But further than that, his reasoning is because Moses is preached in every city. Now, I couldn't say this for, you know, for 100%. So we had to make a choice. Either A, James is saying that all Gentiles need to follow these things. Or B, he's helping the Gentiles who are coming to the faith not be uh, offensive to those people who are familiar with the law um, in the case of, of the Jews. So if you have a congregation of people who are Gentiles and Jewish, even though the Gentiles aren't circumcised, we can keep them from being overly offensive to our Jewish brethren. But... Um, it and in either case, either we have to decide that either that that no believers need to be eating blood, and that's a that's a that's a discussion we can have, or that he was making it so that they could get along with one another. So we want to make sure that um, we're getting something out of our time in study of the Bible. Um, there are people that will study the Bible from an academic perspective and frankly not, in my opinion, not really get much out of it. Uh, someone told me one time, you know, well, I, yeah, I know all about the Bible. I took Bible in college. And uh, yeah, he, he knew about some facts about the Bible, but he didn't really know uh, the proper applications or really wasn't even making applications, at least in the conversation we were having. So uh, let's talk about some things in Exodus 19 and 20 that um, really reflect on the life that we ought to have today as Christians. And, you know, that's difficult to some degree because when you think about it, you see that, uh, he is making a covenant. God is making a covenant with his people, Israel. 
and we're not Israelites. And that nation, as it was then, does not exist today, in the, at least not in the same way. Uh, and so I, I guess, fellas, I, I would suggest that uh, that does kind of, in some ways, present a difficulty for us to uh, make application. At the but same, I think, yeah. At the same time, however... While we are not under the same covenant as these people, that doesn't mean that God's will is not being revealed in this covenant. Uh, in Ephesians 1, it says that he had it was his eternal will from before the foundation of the earth that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, he might have had different ways of revealing that appropriate for the time and appropriate for the people, appropriate for the covenant, appropriate for their situation. We look at the the way that he dealt with the patriarchs and we can see that his will was made known to them and he had things that were particular to them, but it was always that same will. Uh, we can see here in the law that he had a will for his people and it was particular to them, although it was always his will. And so when we start seeing the things that are in, you know, even just as Ten Commandments in the beginning of the law, we are starting to understand what he wants from all people. Uh, this law was not only for Israel um, because they were the only ones to know it. And they later on tried to keep it a secret, it seems. But they were supposed to read it out loud every three years. And so there would be people who were from various nations. There were aliens. There were resident aliens. There were people who were sojourners with them who would be able to hear the law in its entirety every three years, along with all the people, even down to the children. And so, yes, I agree, we are not under that same covenant. But that doesn't mean that there is not just so much incredible application for us today. I mean, even if you start with just the very beginning here, uh, even before he gives the law, that he specifically says that keeping his law, keeping his covenant will make them special to him among all people, although he has authority and ownership over all human beings. Mm -hmm. I mean, that concept alone is a straight up New Testament concept. That, mm -hmm. that, that concept alone helps us to understand that we have a responsibility to keep his law and be special to him. Absolutely. Are there, is there anything you see about that, Brent? Yeah. So with the way that, God's will, there's a consistency, you know, and obviously Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 claimed that he was fulfilling everything that the law law had said. Um, I think we're actually able to get more out of this in application than anybody ever could before Jesus came. And I think a good practice is how the law, um, well, <laughs> I guess like an example really quick that I think helps to make the point really simply um, is in first Corinthians chapter nine, verse nine, Paul's talking about um, somebody who's spreading the gospel, teaching the gospel, you know, is like they're, they're living and he's trying to make the case that like, he's not just giving his opinion. I mean, the law testifies to the fact that that person ought to be supported financially for doing that. And he brings up, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And he says, he says something that I think is like mind blowing. It's like a mic drop. You know, he says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? And it's like, well, I mean, that's, 
That's what the law was about. So I thought so. And then verse 10, he says, or is he speaking altogether for our sakes? Yes, for our sake, it was written because the plowman not to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. So I think there's, there's a, there's an intention within the law that although things are said that at first glance may not seem relatable, I think the encouragement is that through meditation on the full will of God, not making leaps of conclusions that are not sound or fitting with what what is there. But I think like in First Corinthians 9, you know, I think you can make New Testament applications from especially these portions of the law uh, where there are commandments that at first just don't seem relatable. Right. And that's that's the thing. I mean, we see the New Testament authors making this connection. And so it's important that we make that connection as well. Um, you know, Hebrews 12 in verse 18, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you've come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So sort of, the author there comparing and contrasting, you know, this is not where we are. Uh, this is where God's people were at that time, but there's a closeness now that we mm-hmm. can have with God that they were not able to have for multiple reasons. Um, so, I mean, and of course in, in the context, it's this sense where it's saying, you know, you don't have to have this. You don't have to, you know, it's not something where God is this distant, uh, uh, person. And then at the same time, we recognize throughout the whole Bible, God is calling for all of humanity to want to be close to him, to want to be his people. Um, so that's, that's definitely what we ought to want. That's what we need to want. And, and, and so it's an interesting tension here because at the same time, God wants us to be close to him. But then also there is a fear aspect that even I think applies under New Testament Christianity that, uh, you know, don't touch that mountain. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think, do you think any of the, the mothers in Israel would allow their kids to, to, you know, go out and play close to that mountain and touch that mountain? No, they would hold on to them and keep them away from it. Uh, so there is a tension here where like, and I think there's an application in this too, that, that we need to be close to God and we should want to be close to God, but we also recognize there's something else there. Go ahead. No, absolutely. Not only is there something else there, but that he has, but that we don't stop listening to him because the problem is if we don't have an appropriate reverence and fear for God, we don't listen to what he's saying. So Mm -hmm. the, the, I mean, I agree tension is part of it. And then the application of that tension is to make sure that we don't fail to listen. Um, you know, it's interesting the way that the entirety of the New Testament continues. I mean, I'm glad that Brian brought up the passage in First Corinthians 9 that he did. 
that is an interesting application of what might, what might seem to be like a minor law, but he certainly puts he certainly puts application of it, and he says, "Look, God's primary consideration was not just about oxen; that there is a right. lesson here." And you can kind of see this throughout. I mean, if you look at the end of Romans, like 13, 14, and 15, sort of in a row, have some interesting applications. Uh, in 13, 8, owe nothing to one another. He says, owe nothing to anyone except love one mm. another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And he makes his point. He says, all the different commandments are summed up as you should love your neighbor as yourself. Love doesn't do wrong to a neighbor, in verse 10. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And then he says, he puts, then he says, put it in practice. He says, do this knowing the time, knowing that the hour for you to awaken from sleep, uh, knowing that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is bigger mm-hmm. to us than we, we believed. Now, he's talking to a group of saints that are mixed from a Jewish and Gentile background. He's talking to people who had, you know, known the law from birth and people who were learning it for the first time. But he's telling them all to make application of this idea of love as it is seen in the law. In 14, he talks about the fact that we don't judge one another because we're all going to bow evenly and equally before God. And he says that in verse 11, again, making an application uh, from the law, or in this Mm -hmm. case, from the later prophets. in 15, he's still, he's using the Psalms to make application. And then he says specifically, whatever was in verse four, what it was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So that the perseverance of the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I mean, mm-hmm. the scriptures he's talking about, is the old Testament. Right. So this pattern of making application of the old Testament up to and including the law is not, is not something that we're new to. Right. Uh, it's something that the New Testament authors were already doing, and therefore we have a pattern of that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and Stephen is right. That allows us to have an ability to make application of these things in a very mature way. Now, of mm-hmm. course, that requires that we do it. Another thing, I mean, in, in terms of this discussion... You know how do we how do we uh, reconcile First John four and verse eighteen? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. I think there's a lot in the context, of course, to answer that question. But in light of our discussion and uh, what we're talking about here, with I mean, fear is the motivator in Exodus nineteen and Exodus twenty. Uh, to in in many respects, um, and maybe I'm overselling that, but I think I think that's something that we see very clearly. And so, how do we reconcile that? Okay, so I, I ought to fear God, but here John is saying perfect love casts out fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's um in interesting um reconciliation, you know, trying to figure out, well, what is John saying? Uh, in first John four, verse 21, after that, it's talking about, you know, loving our brethren, uh, in verse chapter five, verse two, um, observing his commandments, keeping his commandments in verse three, and not having them be a burden. I think in striving to obey God, we're confronted with fear that is not actually 
a fear of God, but a fear of the burden of obedience and the fear of people's responses. Um, because love is inherently very challenging, um, especially God's love. And I think like something that's helped me a lot. Um, and you know, if, if this doesn't sound right to you guys, you know, I'm totally open to hearing, hearing about it. Um, but in, in verse, uh, 18 of first John four, you know, something that's, that's helped me, um, is thinking about it like marriage, you know, um, like it's not so much that I have to love God perfectly, but I need to recognize how perfect God's love is for me, how faithful he is. You know, that if I recognize that in obedience, you know, God is going to fulfill his promises, that God is not going to abandon me, that God will deliver me. If I recognize that God is a father to me and that just as Jesus was faithful to his disciples in trials, God will be faithful to me in my trials. Um, you know, that I'm not worried about God abandoning me, um, you know, because I think about in a, in a bad marriage when one spouse is paranoid that the other spouse is not going to be faithful to them, that's really going to be crippling to the relationship, you know, but if, if I'm confident that I can trust my spouse, you know, they're going to be faithful to me. Well, then I can, I can focus on different things with more maturity in our relationship. And I can, I can do more with my spouse than I would be able to, if I didn't have that trust in my spouse. Um, and so God, God's proven the faithfulness of his love and because of that, you know, there's there's a capacity and a freedom to be able to love without fear, if that makes sense. And beyond that, if you have someone who is obedient only out of fear of reprisal, they're only going to do so much. It's like in a job yes, situation. Right. If you have yes, someone yes, who yes. is only going to function in his <laughs> job enough to not get fired or to not get written up, that's a certain level of cooperation with the, with the boss's, right. uh, you know, uh, will. But if you have someone who actually looks at the vision of the company, looks at like where we're going and says, I love this. I love the people I work for. I want to see them succeed. He's going to invest yeah. in this. Exactly. He's going to cooperate in a completely different way. Now, yeah, that, that doesn't mean he disrespects. It just means that he's bringing it to the most mature um, level of obedience. And that is an obedience right. out of love. So here's yeah. the deal. We should not ever cease to fear God, but our main motivation in obeying him should never be. So he doesn't throw me in hell. Our main motivation is because he's loved us and I love him. Now that's right. going to be a different kind of obedience. And, and I do think it's valid though. When someone becomes a Christian, I think I think it is valid for us to have this sense of, okay, I don't want to go to hell. Uh, I don't want to suffer mm-hmm. the consequences. But I think there is a development there. And again, I think you see this in the scriptures when we're when we're babies. I mean, uh, there 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 is that aspect there. Um, so I, I don't think that fear as a motivator is necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you know, again, I think that's what God's using as His people. I mean, the nation of Israel in Exodus 19 is a child, is a little baby. And and God is is just very simply putting forward, okay, this is how I expect you to live. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I, I think there's that as well. But you do want to develop past that. And I think what you see in the history of the Old Testament is that, you know, his people really, you know, sometimes develop past that. I think some individuals do. 
but the nation as a whole, I mean, it's a history of unfaithfulness. So, well, is there anything else, fellas, that you guys see that uh, is applicable? Well, I, well, think, I um, certainly think. Oh, one. Go ahead, Jeremy. <laughs> well, even within the laws themselves, there are several of them here that we need to. I know we might think that they are simple, the Ten Commandments. And, and sometimes what we might do, sadly, is that we might look at them as like a totem or a talisman. We want to put them up at courthouses. We want to have legal battles with the Satan right. or this kind of yeah. thing. But really, honestly, what we don't do often is take them seriously and try to right. follow these things in a very mature way. Just the Ten Commandments. Right. right. I mean, right. yeah, we'll get, down, we'll get down on how we treat our oxen later. But I'm just talking about just the Ten Commandments. We don't often take these things very seriously when we're talking mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. not having anything before God. I mean, we can see that there's someone in the New Testament that Jesus specifically, he finds a way to condemn him for having something in, uh, ahead of God Big, right. uh, with, the, with the ruler, the, the upwardly yeah. mobile, um, wealthy politician. You know, here you have someone who looks like that he's the meal ticket for the, you know, for the disciples. And Jesus tells him, he says, look, unless you give all of it, everything up that you've got, that is your measure of success, you can't come and do this. Mm-hmm. He leaves. But that opening conversation, he says, what do I need to do in, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus starts about three quarters of the way through the Ten Commandments. Right. But it's it's those early commandments that he's not keeping because he found something mm-hmm. that he would pay attention to more than God. Right. Well, and one I think thing that, one thing you lack, he says. Yeah. Right. And I think he, Jesus saw depth to God's commandments because he knew God. And I think that's what he exposed in the rich young ruler is the rich young ruler was only perceiving things as these things, as almost like dry rituals, um, you know, that had a had a fine line, whereas there's a depth to these things that when reflected with God's character um, you know, there's such a, there's such a, a length that these things can be taken that ought to be very convicting and humbling. Um, I think like a, a helpful way, I think to see some of these things is the principle of antithesis. Um, and that probably sounds like a strange word, but it just means that things are connected by their opposites and you can actually know, you can know something's opposite in some ways by just understanding the form that has an opposite first kind of like light and darkness you know if you don't if you don't see darkness very much you know if you're a room full of light you know you could you could describe darkness as okay just think about this room there's a light on just try to imagine the complete absence of light and you might not be able to perfectly understand it but you can at least grasp the concept that there's an absence of the one thing and therefore the opposite um looks um looks like the, that absence. Uh, and I guess like to say that a little more practically about the 10 commandments, when he says you shall not make yourself an idol or have any other God before him, I think there's an antithesis that for us, we fixate our eyes on Jesus, you know, so God has given us an image in a sense, a likeness to exalt and, uh, to follow, you know, so we honor Jesus. We try to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. We try to follow him um, not taking the name of the Lord in vain. John 17, verse 6, Jesus said that he manifested God's name. You know, so not only do we not just 
not take the name of God in vain. We try to honor his name. We want to exalt his name. We want to praise his name. We want to live in a way that reflects the beauty and the honor of his name. Uh, Verse 8 through 11 with remembering the Sabbath. Jesus, instead of only receiving rest, Jesus spent his life giving God's rest to those who had unrest. So instead of just taking rest, we give rest to others, especially the rest that God provides. As God gives us rest, we give it to others. Um, honor your father and mother is restated in Ephesians chapter uh, chapter 6. Um, and you shall not murder. You know, you think about instead of murdering, showing grace, showing kindness, hoping all things, believing all things, being patient and tolerant. You know, not committing adultery, keeping the marriage bed undefiled and keeping marriage held in honor in Hebrews 13, not stealing, instead giving, not bearing false witness, Ephesians 4.25, instead speak truth with your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his male servant, female servant, blessing instead of coveting. You know, Jesus emphasized uh, allowing things to be taken from you, give to all who ask of you. And bless those who curse you. So I think all of these, all of these things do actually have very relevant fulfillments that I think help us to understand that Jesus took the principles of these commands. And what he did is he exposed that there was a length that these commandments were always intended to go, that because of a lack of faith and a lack of truly knowing the glory of God because of sin, nobody perceived how far these things could actually be taken. Well, and all, all these promises of this is for you and for your sons and, you know, your generations after you, uh, you know, obviously by the time of the first century, the Pharisees were basically saying salvation is by the law. And, mm-hmm. uh, but the reality of that is, and you know, I mean, you're, you're touching on it. Jesus at the same time, you know, in Matthew five is saying not one jot or one tittle is going to, uh, change or fault in the law right. until all is fulfilled. And so in that statement, he's saying nothing has changed about the law, but there's an implication that there is going to be a fulfillment. And he mm-hmm. was that fulfillment. And so just what, what you were saying about, you know, the way that these commands are fulfilled, it, it behooves us to recognize that and see that even the Sabbath day, we talk about, you know, people mention, well, everything kind of carried forward except the Sabbath day. But really, if you read Hebrews, we still have a Sabbath day. It's just not the same as what they had. Not and, only that. Uh, oh, yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, not only, not only that, but you start, to start, you start to see what the Sabbath was about. The Sabbath yes, was about right. ceasing this idea that I run the world and that it's my hand yes. that makes all my prosperity. Yeah. I mean, in Amos, you already have people who are saying, you know, when is the Sabbath going to be over so I can get back to work and cheat people out of money some more? I got money to make, man. (laughs) Now, you want to talk about something that has application now. How about human beings' unhealthy relationship with work? Right. Oh, man. Working working 80 hours a week for years upon years, missing time with your family, and all for what? I mean, what are you getting out of that? Right. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of our brethren, I mean, we've got this sort of excuse, well, I'm providing for my family. Well, you sure are. But do you really need to provide your for your family to that tune? And then are you providing yourself for your family? And are you remembering that you don't really make the world turn? Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. I think the print. 
The principle relates to Hebrews 13, verse 5 and 6, where it says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what sure. you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Well, and I, I, I look at verse 5, too, and verse 5 has an implication, you know, because... Why, why should we not make a carved image? Well, I'm the Lord God. I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Mm. And so the implication of that in that verse to me is that if I make a carved image of God or some other image of him, uh, then it means that I hate him. And And then when you get to the foundations of that, I think about it from the standpoint of what happened in the garden. Satan, you know, if Eve had made uh, an image of of God, I think, you know, or excuse me, an image of Satan, uh, then I I think Satan would have been fine with that. But I think his goal was to get her to change her ideas about who God is. And that's idolatry. Mm -hmm. We're changing our idea about who God is. And so I can construct an idol in my heart just as much as carving something out of wood or, you know, knocking it out of stone or marble. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. that gets down to the foundation of idolatry. So that, again, that still very much applies today. So if I'm doing that, constructing this other God that I'm going to serve, that's not, does not reflect the true God of the scriptures, then, uh, it means that I hate him. Well, and he doesn't even get out of chapter 20 before reiterating this, this idea of making other gods beside me. I mean, he, I mean, he starts early. We talked about yeah. this in, in the previous sections. We talked about this in the previous in the previous section when what you have is this this reminder that the Ten Commandments are not just the Ten Commandments, but they're going to be uh, fulfilled more fully in the rest of the law, and then of course ultimately in the rest of the covenant. Well, thank you so much for listening to Walking Through the Book today. We hope that it's been useful for you. I know it's been useful for us, um, and uh, certainly grateful for uh, Jeremy and uh, and Bryant. Thank you guys for. For doing this with me well we're thankful for you yeah. Stephen. yeah absolutely it's always very encouraging next time lord willing we'll be looking at exodus uh, chapter 21 and uh, hopefully we will continue to walk through the book together until that time we pray that you uh, study well and be lights to god's glory
Music used in this program is graciously provided by Symphonia. Symphonia is a nonprofit foundation whose purpose is to compose, publish, and promote hymns for congregational worship. Find out more at symphonia.com.